We've taken some time this holiday season to focus our thoughts on the great prophetic passages of the book of Isaiah that the New Testament quotes, or if not quotes, at least alludes to the reality of the coming of God's Son, our Lord Jesus. But as I said, in the, as we read the scriptures earlier, our tendency is often to jump from the mention of those passages that we know speak of Christ, because they're quoted in the New Testament as referring to Christ. And then we get absorbed with the revelation God's given of himself in the New Testament. And a lot of times we leave behind the whole context of the Old Testament, which I think helps us to understand the fuller picture that sometimes we don't see when we just run quickly uh, to the New Testament. Because there's more that follows in chapter 7 than the direct Emmanuel promise. The promise is there in verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. God is with us, with us to save, with us to reveal, with us to renew with us to uh, to bless, uh, to bring uh, his grace and salvation to us, never to leave us, never to forsake us. And yet more is said about this child. And in parts, there's fulfillment of what's said that has to do with the immediate context of Ahaz's troubles, that these northern kings are seeking to dethrone him. They're seeking to topple him from his place of leadership. And in a real sense, this is a man that ought to get replaced. He's not a good man. He's a man who not only is looking to ward off a conspiracy to the north of Syria and the northern tribes, but he's involved in the conspiracy himself, looking to get Assyria to be his sponsor, the armies of the Assyrians to be his defenders. And what he actually does is he brings the nation of Judah under Assyrian domination. And he even brings the altar of the Assyrian gods to Jerusalem. He is himself a worshiper of false gods. And yet in the midst of that, God still says, Ahaz, the throne is not going to topple in your day. You're going to still exist. These northern kings, they're not going to be able to do what they designed to do. Interestingly enough, you're not going to be able to do what you designed to do because you think the Assyrians are going to be your saviors. And in fact, they're not going to be. They're going to be the greatest enemy that you've ever faced in your life. And they're going to come and they're going to bring great destruction and misery uh, to the land. And certainly in the days of uh, the successor king, Hezekiah, uh, Assyria comes right up to the neck of Jerusalem, outside the gates of Jerusalem, before God brings a deliverance in that day. But again, you can ward off the dangers of Syria and the northern tribes. You can ward off the danger of the Assyrians. You can ward off the danger of many empires that rise and fall. But there's always going to be a successor empire. There's always going to be another kingdom that you have to contend with. And so no sooner do the Assyrians leave the scene, the Babylonians come and bring the southern kingdom into captivity. And of course, after that, the Persians, and after that, the Greeks, and after that, the Romans. And now you're into Jesus' day. And, and there's, there's, there's rival kings and rival kingdoms that all stand against the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. The nations 
And they're kings. They take their stand together, Psalm 2 says, against the Lord, against his anointed one. And so our attitude towards human kingdoms should be not to make them our confidence, not to make them our trust. One of the Psalms says, put not your trust in princes, nor for help on man depend. There's no sooner do you think that kingdom is going to be the kingdom that's going to deliver me from my troubles and bring me all the things I want. They're going to pick your pockets and they're going to leave you in despair. There's only one king worthy to serve. His name is Jesus. And you need to bow to him. And so this is a passage that sets out to us a warning against the dangers of alliances, of conspiracies, it's called in the ESV translation, But it's the idea of entering into covenant relationships with umpires that you think are going to do you good. And they have their own own concerns of just enriching themselves. Their their interest is in themselves. They're they're not interested in the greater good of Israel. They're not looking to make Israel great again. They're looking to make themselves great again. They're not looking at the best interests of the people. They're looking at the best interests of themselves. And they're going to trample underfoot those who put their trust in in, in them. Just as Ahaz made that great error to go to the Assyrians, that that becomes their great enemy, his his great enemy. So we make great mistakes when we look to trust in human empire or, or human systems of thought. It's not just the powerful machinery of the Assyrians that are the danger which actually they are a danger and they are a threat, but also the Assyrian gods go into mediums, he speaks about, going to those that call upon the dead to give you light into the future. And Israel was doing that as well. And the call is, should not a people inquire of their God? See, what's emphasized here to Ahaz and to you and me is that the posture of our minds and hearts before God must ever be one of confident trust in Him. The message Isaiah came to Ahaz with is Ahaz, if you don't stand firm in faith, you will not stand firm at all. And and the information we're given in chapter 8 is that firmness of faith must be directed to the Word of God. Not some other revelation. Not some other source of information not what the dead can dredge up in their dreams or mediums can dredge up looking into their crystal balls or their tea leaves or the palm of your hand or whatever else they do to practice their arts of telling the future they don't know the future only one knows the future the living and true God inquire of him look to him to the teaching, to the testimony. If they don't speak according to this word, there's no light in them. No good to be found anywhere but in Him. So that's the warning. There's a great warning in this passage. I should have told you what I'm going to do today is I'm going to look at the warning and then um, what I'm going to do in a minute is I'm going to look at the second part of my Christmas message which is the wooing. There's a wooing going on here in this passage along with the warning. The warning is, don't do what Ahaz did. Don't make alliances, trusting in godless empires to be your deliverer, to be your helper, to be the thing that's going to establish you and be your defender. They won't be. They won't be. 
Don't look to other sources of information and make your trust in them. Their political theory, their social theories, their um, insights and expertise in this thing or that thing or the next thing. Look to your God. Put your trust in Him. Make Him the source of your confidence. Live by faith. But there's wooing that we're going to look at now. And tomorrow morning, we're going to look at wonder. Wonder. That's my Christmas message. Two parts of it tonight. The warning, I've given it to you. The wooing, I'm going to give to you. And the wonder. The wonder that we're going to look at God willing tomorrow. We want to do a little bit of wooing. Again, God's picture towards his people in terms of covenant is that of covenant love. Of a God who draws us with the cords of love. Again, that's something that the book of Jeremiah emphasizes considerably, as we've seen. Uh, those who have been here in the evening when we studied Jeremiah, it's also there in the book of Hosea. It's certainly also there in the New Testament. It's the greatness of divine love that meets us in the gospel, that meets us in the provision of God's grace in the coming of Christ. And you see, it's that wooing that God does when he sets Jesus before us that ought to win our hearts. You see, we're not to come into allegiance with the God of the covenant by reason of, well, we have no place else to go, although that's true. We have no place else to go. But it's also, it's the willing choice of our hearts. We go no other place. It's not just that we're lost for other places. We, we choose him. We choose to serve him. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord because He's worthy to be served. The picture that's given to us of the birth of this child is that this child is the presence of God with us. It's the God of heaven and earth who comes and visits us. He's not distant. He's not far away. He's not inaccessible. He's not lacking in interest and concern. For you and I. He comes in the gospel out of concern. Out of the depths of his love. He comes and he gives us his son. And in the giving of his son, we're told several things about him. Yes, he is God with us, conceived of the virgin. But we're told in verse 15, and again, some of this may have to do with, this, with, the, with the promise immediately, but I think most of the verse 15 it really is embracing something quite different. Because the first part of verse 15 is, it tells us, he shall eat curds and honey. What's his diet have to do with anything? <laughs> and we were told about John the Baptist's diet, locusts and wild honey. But here it's not locusts. Jesus doesn't eat locusts, but he eats curds, product of milk. He eats cheese. Curdled milk. Now, it's interesting that commentators that I read and respect, they make comments such as, this is the, this is the food of poverty. This is the food of warfare. This is the food of people that have gone through difficulties 
And, and they'll say, well, in verse 21 it says, in that day, and in the context of the day that's being spoken of, it's a day primarily of judgment, when the uh, Syrians come and uh, they sweep away the beard of the, of, of the nation, uh, gives them a, a shave, and uh, come and settle in the ravines and in the valleys and the clefts of the rock and thorn bushes and, and um, briars. Are, 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 but yet still, in the midst of all of that, you got this man in verse 21 who keeps alive a young cow and two sheep. You're not going to starve when you've got a, a cow and a couple of sheep. And you're not going to be cold because you're going to be able to have wool. You'll be able to have something that at least is going to provide you with sufficiency. And so I don't think it's poverty here. I think it's provision here. I think what we're being told is that God is a God who makes provision. And when he makes provision for Israel, he makes a provision for a land which the emphasis upon the land in Exodus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, in the law, is that it is a land that flows with what? Milk and honey! Milk and honey! I know it's curds, but that's just taking milk and making cheese with it. Making cheese with it. It's still milk and honey! And so what this child does is this child brings ultimately what no king of Israel could ensure. God's promised inheritance of a land flowing with milk and honey. That's what's in jeopardy here. The northern ten tribes are going to be taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Those are the children of Jacob, the children of Abraham. And because of their covenant disobedience, they're not going to have an inheritance in this land that flows with milk and honey. They're, cut being, they're going to be cut off. Again, that's the covenant threat. That's the threat of the covenant. If you don't keep God's law, He's going to cut you off. But this is a child that's going to bring the blessing of Abraham ultimately to the nations. We'll see that tomorrow in chapter 11. He's going to bring the blessings of Abraham to the nations of the world. The inheritance, the meek will inherit the earth and the righteous will rejoice in the abundance of peace. What Psalm 37 says. The child's going to bring the blessing of an inheritance that no man can take from us. An inheritance of the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. God's put into the care of his son, the virgin-born child, Emmanuel, the age to come. It belongs to him. And he's its heir. And all who believe in him are joint heirs with him. We will enter into that assured inheritance of that land, which is ultimately a restored earth, a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells and I think that's how you see the promise of Emmanuel moving from a child to a land, remember that in chapter 8 when we read it in chapter 8 the Assyrians will come and will diffuse themselves through Emmanuel's land They're going to take that land into captivity, but God's going to restore that land through Emmanuel. 
Emmanuel's land is the inheritance that he will bring. It is the restoration of the world in sin, being brought back to God, and being brought back to that original state when we will see the curse lifted, and we will see the blessings of eternity in a land that is abundant, a restored garden. He'll eat curds and honey. And so will we. So will we. In the blessing of the inheritance that is to come. And then this eating of curds and honey is said to be when he knows how to refuse the evil and to choose the good. Now, I know you can just say, well, that just means you come to years of discretion. You come to years of being able to make proper moral judgments. This is good. This is evil. Yeah, but not everybody grows up that way. Not everybody ever comes to true moral discernment, being able to discern good from evil, choose the evil, refuse the good. And, but this is language that meets humanity in the Garden of Eden. There's a tree of the knowledge of what? Of good and evil. And Eve is tempted by the devil to think, We will arrive at good and evil from the vantage point of rebellion. From the vantage point of paying no mind to God and going in on our own wits. God knows in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. How'd that work out? Not very well. Plunged us into the misery of the sinful state we're in in a fallen, cursed world. Where thorns and briars are everywhere. But it's this Emmanuel, this child, that's going to restore the kingdom back to God. It's going to restore the covenant. He's going to restore the land. He's going to restore the inheritance. Restore creation. Because he is the one who's going to arrive at the knowledge of good and evil. Not from the vantage point of rebellion and compromise, but obedience. The only one that ever lived life in perfection in doing the good and refusing the evil. This boy is going to know exactly how to do that. Always to delight in his father. Always to delight in doing the will of his father. My meat and my drink is to do the will of God. Jesus declared, I always do the things that please him. It's the picture that it's this virgin-born child, this Emmanuel. He will be the one to restore the world to its rights. We sing at Christmas season, he comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Comes to raise the sons of earth, comes to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. The king is going to come and restore the kingdom to God. Restore us as part of that kingdom to God. Restore the world to its rights. To the knowledge of God and the knowledge of good and evil. To know to refuse the evil and to choose the good. Even as he does. And we would enter into that inheritance that will have no end of a kingdom in which nothing but Good exists. A new heavens, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God would 
draws to his son by painting his work in the kind of colors you see in a passage like this. All of the kings of the earth are not out for your good. They're out for their good. They're out to use you, abuse you, and when they're done with you, they'll just get rid of you. Don't need you any longer. This is a king who loves us. This is a king who provides for us. This is a king who goes to the cross and he dies for us. Who renders obedience to the will of his father for our sake. That we would be redeemed and we would be restored and we would be inheritors of a new heavens and new earth. God woos us to his son by painting the picture of the king whose increase of his government and peace there will be no end. You know what peace is? It's not just the cessation of conflict, although I would take that in Ukraine any, at a moment's notice, if there was just a cessation of that horrible conflict. But it's seeing Kiev restored. It's not just the bombing ends. It's that the land thrives. There's abundance. There's prosperity. There's well-being. God restores us to himself through his son to bring us into a government under a reign in which there's endless abundance, prosperity, and well-being. He woos us to himself by presenting to us one who is a wonderful counselor. One who gives us counsel that's right and good from the vantage point of infinite knowledge and understanding of the way the world works. That Jesus can be trusted when we obey him, when we follow him, when we receive his words. He says, he that here has these words of mine and does them. I will liken unto a man who builds his house upon a rock. The rain falls, and man, it fell last night, didn't it? Washed out areas of our, um, not not last night, night before, I guess it was, when that rain just came down and washed out many areas. And um, But you see, when we build our house upon a rock, you don't have to worry that the the power is going to go out. You don't have to worry that uh, things will just be devastated and you won't know how to... Not, I'm not saying that God's going to prevent powers outages, but I'm saying we'll always have access to the reality of his blessing. He that hear, has these words of mine and does them was like that, that man who builds his house upon the rock and though devastation comes and all troubles come and all manner of difficulties come, you don't fall, you stand. You stand holy, you stand intact, you stand upright. If you don't stand in faith, you won't stand at all. But if you stand in faith, you will stand. You will, you will stand. Paul says to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, to put on the whole arm of God, that you might stand against the wiles of the devil, having done all to stand. We will stand and not fall. Because Jesus leads us with his counsel, guides us with his eye, will lead us to glory. He's the mighty God, the everlasting Father, 
the Prince of Peace. He reigns at the throne of David over his kingdom to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. You know, when you really think about what Jesus offers us, it's everything that we desire to have and seek in so many places and never find it. It's what does the heart really cry out for? It cries out for justice. It cries out for right. We feel a sense of injustice when we've been treated unjustly, when we've been victimized by the bad behavior of others. Now, sometimes we don't necessarily plead for the justice that others need, but again, we know it when we've been badly treated, when injustice has come to us. And what Jesus does is he woos us with the sense that I'm the one who's come to take all the wrongs and make them right again. Establish his kingdom with justice, with righteousness, with peace. May I also say beauty? There are a lot of pictures that Isaiah gives us of the king later on in his prophecy. I think it's in chapter, I don't want to guess what it is. It's after 28. You have the picture there of the king in his beauty. The king in his beauty. Again, we have the words of Emmanuel's land taking up that language. It's found in Isaiah. The king there in his beauty, without a veil is seen, it were a well-spent journey with seven deaths laid between. And our hearts cry out for beauty. Our hearts cry out to turn away from the ugliness of the blight of a world in sin. And Jesus comes and he shows us beauty. He shows us how things ought to be, what the world should be like. Again, it's the return to the garden. God's prepared for us things which Scripture tells us, eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has entered into the heart of man. The things that God has prepared for those who love him, and God's revealed them to us by his Spirit that searches all things, ye the deep things of God. We come into the orbit of Christian faith and Christian profession. We come into the orbit of getting a glimpse of how the world should be, absent sin of what the world should be like. We have a down payment of the future inheritance that comes to us now through the Spirit of God that's given to us so that the heart that cries out for righteousness finds righteousness, not just for ourselves, but desiring it for others as well. A heart that finds peace for ourselves desires not just for ourselves, but for others as well. What we, what we gain from God, we want others to share in. We want others to know. We want others to receive. We want the blessings of grace and salvation to come to a lost and a needy world. So God woos us to himself, woos us to his son, with the offer of everything that heart, our hearts could ever de- desire, ever long for. His presence. God with us. Emmanuel. With us to protect us. To defend us. To delight us. To provide for us. To strengthen us. To guide us with his eye. And afterward. Receive us to glory. So I hope we're warned of the kingdom we shouldn't be after.
all the false kingdoms that are out there, yes, but in here as well. We like to be king of our own little kingdoms, our own little control and sovereignty over our own things. But we should desire God's kingdom and God's king, the king who brings us beauty, the king who brings us justice, the king who brings us righteousness, the king that brings us joy, the king that brings us peace, the king that brings us to what humanity was made for, made for God, made for the knowledge of God, the fellowship of God, the love of God, the service of God. Jesus woos us to himself. He says, all this is what I give. Come to me. Find in me all this and more. May God be pleased to bless us. At this Christmas season, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this time at this Christmas season to gather, to consider this monumental passage of scripture we have here that not only shows us Jesus and some of the high water marks of his revelation but also within the context seeing exactly the futility of this world and all the idols that people are after all the things they seek for to find their peace and their confidence and to have their fears come to an end and have some hope for the future and all of those things they look to will fail the only thing that will ever succeed is what Christ has come into the world to do he's come to bring back a fallen race to to the living God to remove the curse to bring in the blessings of so great a salvation and for all that you are and all that you give us Lord Jesus we bless you We ask that you would be the willing choice of our hearts as we come and we ask these things in your blessed and holy name. Amen.